Okay, well, thanks everyone for uh, coming to the roundtable this evening. So yeah, I, think I won't say too much about the papers because I think most people were here, but um, two great papers today, I think, uh, by Martin Hagelin, uh giving us a critique of Mayasu um, based on the concept of succession that he develops, um, giving us the sort of beginnings of the theory of arcane materiality and um, exploring some of the political implications of deconstructive logic. Um, and then Peter Hallward in the second session, um, giving us a theory of what he calls dialectical voluntarism and uh, laying out um, some very concrete criteria uh, for what uh, conceptualization of dialectical voluntarism would require, uh, giving us some examples, etc. So I think there's a lot to, uh, to talk about between these two papers. And I, I have lots of questions, but I think as I did last night, um, maybe the best way to get underway uh, is just to ask the three of you um, if you have questions for each other uh, that have emerged from the discussion this afternoon and between the, the two papers. And hopefully we'll also be able to, to open up the conversation to uh, everyone in the audience as well. Questions. <coughs> Afternoon, that it's very different 
your question about, say, beforehand and your question about the number, it seems to me. And analogously, that's also a big difference between wanting to exempt things that are actually things or processes that are actually processes, whether that's getting a forehand or conducting a political struggle, wanting to say that we can think of those things irrespective of time is very different from saying the example with a number, which of course is not a thing, it's not, it's, it's a formal unit for a certain discourse. But it, it seems to me, so if you could, like, what is the connection you're making between those two examples? Because I guess uh, I was obviously addressing other aspects of your question, but I think if you could clarify that, I would also clarify the force of what you were just saying now. Uh, yeah, well, certainly the forehand is in, in, in empirical time, the way that the numbers are not, um, but numbers are constructed through succession. That's yeah. all I meant there. So yeah. I, I don't think it's helpful to really think of it as, as temporal, but yeah. there is certainly the the repetition of an operation which succeeds and, su and yeah. can succeed any number of times. It wouldn't take any longer. It doesn't take any longer to generate the number of 10 billion than it takes to generate the number of three. Um, but, but there is an operation of succession that Okay, but my point is just I don't see the problem for what I'm doing, what I'm arguing. If I were to exempt mathematics or say the formal units of mathematics, such as a number, from what I'm treating, I don't see how that would pose a problem for what I'm doing. It's very different if you can show that something like hitting a forehand or conducting a political struggle. Uh, it's not adequately thought in terms of what I'm saying are necessary but not sufficient conditions for it, but I, I don't quite see the problem with math. I think there's a big, I, at least there's something at stake that's big, which yeah. because in, in the case this argument goes way back, right, yeah. to Plato and company, yeah. because it's the status of can we, of what is the limits of the think of the thinkable, and is the think, are the limits of the thinkable to some extent connected to the limits of the livable, let's say, um, and, and the platonic gesture, which Bedu has revived, and, and people in that tradition revived, is to say there's no, the, the content of what is livable, or what, or the temporality of survival, in your terms, yeah. puts no restrictions on thought. Because thought is able to determine its own course on its own criteria, which have nothing to do with life. I mean, literally nothing to do, and mathematics is the paradigmatic place in which thought does that. And it's not trivial, because, um, in, not in principle and not in practice either because of the consequences of, you know, in fact, you'd have to say, you know, what, what kind of domain of thought is more important than that in a sense, including for its implications for how we think about life and how life determines its environment and, you know, its contribution to sciences and so on. So, like, like to give the recent example that Bedley develops in the beginning of Logics of Worlds, the eternity of prime numbers, right? And he, he acknowledges that there's a temporality to how time prime numbers have been thought. The Greeks thought them one way, and, and the moderns thought them another, to put it crudely. But that there is something about the concept of a prime number which is trans-temporal in that way, or at least, in, that's probably not even a good way to describe it, that is, as he says, an exception to the worlds that historically constitute the worlds in which, the, in which actual ways of thinking about them have been devised. You know, and that is that, he says, in each case, is, you know, that's what a truth is, right? And it's an exception from the temporality of a world, but also, in principle, really an exception from temporality. Hence his reference to immortality, eternity, etc. But not because the positive things that are in themselves, like a fullness that could be deconstructed, 
but because they're just indifferent to it. That in order for them to proceed, in order for us to think the concept of a prime number, we don't need to think about it in terms of temporality. And but what is the connection between that power of thought and the power of thought with the other example you're giving now, the power of thought to determine the course of a political action, determine what is right, because <coughs> this seems to me it does seem to me widely different and I, I I don't see the connection between the two because obviously, as I said before, the, the formal use like prime numbers and so on, they, they just don't bear on the set of philosophical issues that I'm treating. But obviously, like something like human will or the temporality of an action or the problems inherent in the determination of what's right or wrong yeah. bears on those things. So I, um, so, so I think that's been an underlying issue, and I'm just trying to see uh, the connection, because on the face of it, I, uh, that prime numbers are not temporal, or not, do not constitute temporal causes, that doesn't seem, for the set of issues I'm concerned with. Uh, and secondly, what is the link between that power of thought, that you can make a very clear-cut case for, thought can think these things, yeah. and the power of thought to determine what is right, as was your second concern. Well, there's another kind of trivial way of saying that it's not disconnected in the sense that, like, a prime number as the root of, that's the basis now for most forms of encryption and that they're used in security and developing kinds of security, and that that has something to do with, for example, the dynamic between security and survival. And I, I think these things can be connected in, a, in that trivial way, but more importantly, it's more that what is thought capable of? Is it capable of basically determining its own course? And then, it, if, first of all, you have to say that mathematics, I think, shows that it is. And is that the only case? Well, uh, what Badu says is not that um, mathematics then, that politics or love or the other, you know, or art uh, is reducible to mathematics, but that mathematics has a privilege in saying what's at stake, that it can clarify what is being thought in those sequences. So that to have, a, at least he suggests in certain places, to have an adequate account of what politics is doing, you need ultimately to be able to, to mathematize it. In other words, to remove the thinking of it from anything to do with the interpretation of meanings or experiences or the, the semantic texture or complexity of a situation, and ultimately to be able to say there's a, there's a principle that is as clear as a mathematical theorem, and that's a, which is what is at stake. Which might be something as empty as something like one equals one, right? One, everyone counts as one. Right? Um, but so I. So I think, personally, I think it's not, yeah, I wouldn't want to put the mathematical example too much, but... Um. But it is, for the reasons you just brought up, uh, and this has always perplexed me uh, in Badu as well, I've never seen how the link is supposed to work. Like, and that, again, has to do with this, the very different powers of thought to determine their own action. If you're talking about formal discipline, like mathematics, and the power of thought to actually, like, see, as clearly as you see mathematics, like, action what is right, and I just, that transition, like, on the philosophical level, seems to me, at best, very unclear and how it's supposed to work for the sorts of issues you want to think through, which have to do with, like, how do we mobilize the will of the people? How do we... But it's the, if you don't have a reference to that at some level, then all you've got really are different ways of interpreting or different ways of making sense or, or something like that. Without the axiom, maybe. Yeah, without the clarity of something that ultimately refers to something that's as anonymous and meaningless and, and clear and distinct as like a, as a, a mathematizable principle. That's why 
the, the issue is so acute in something like psychoanalysis, I mean, this is probably that Marx is also involved with, like the attempt to mathematize something which traditionally been ultra overladen with the domain of interpretation, like sexuality, guilt, you know, the unconscious, etc. That, that aspiration that you have in Lacan to say we can we can come up with something that is indifferent, and then that a form of analysis that can engage with these things in ways that it's not that it's right or that you can see that it's right or wrong, but that the way of thinking it through would lead to some kind of clarity and distinction, if you like, that is, that can be withdrawn from something like a Jungian um, uh, like uh, strategy of interpretation. And so that that's a question that, that I think that say the Jacobins are pursuing is that can we reason our way through a political sequence? in ways that any rational being could affirm, and has nothing to do with your, with, with, with what this means, or means to you, or, or the, the disputes around uh, meaning, or something like that. So that, that's where the reference to math leads that this is, it's not that it, in any case, the mathematical problems are interesting, but you are not ones that are, uh, that you could decide in advance. They require a decision, they require the engagement in the problem, and the, the movement to the point where it, only a decision Works right. That's why he says the Dirtle Eastern colon, you know, something like that. That what math does is identify the points in which only the determination to resolve an issue one way or the other is adequate to take the next step. So, so math, math itself, no more than or no less than politics, is about <coughs> what I would call anyway the determination of, a, of something like a, a course of action. So, this actually type, so let's talk then about how the formal determination of this seems to work in your own argument because the logical problem that I was faced with listening to you today is how to reconcile on the one hand this sort of what I understood to be an axiom for you, like the will cannot err, you know, it can be distracted, spot is on, but it follows through persistently, it cannot err, will not have been wrong, basically. Yeah. Uh, how you reconcile that, especially now if we lift this to just thinking about it in these clear formal terms that you, that you want us to do, how do you reconcile that with saying that the temporality of action is such that it's only as a result it will have been seen whether or not the will was right or not. Yes. So how can you on the one hand lay down axiomatically that the will cannot be mistaken and at the same time grant the temporality the future anterior of any action which would seem to imply that it's always possible that it can have been wrong. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't call it maximum. I would, it's, a, it's, a, it's something like a principle of confidence. It's just a, a, to have confidence in the people, basically, that if, if, they, if people are able to assemble and do all the things that are basically, this is a, a criteria, if they're able to assemble, if they're able to deliberate, if they're able to be fully self-critical, if they're able to do you know, all those things, if they're able to defend themselves against threats from within and without, etc., then, then then you can, you're entitled, as much as you're entitled in anything, to be confident that that process will get it right, so to speak. In fact, not only that, but it will determine what is right. That there's no better criterion for what is right than that. That's all. But it's, a, it's an issue of confidence. It's not an issue of uh, an action that you know in advance. It's that precisely because you don't know in advance, uh, uh, you have to make a decision about this. You have to basically make a minimal investment. So that, that's a mathematical way to do it, then I'll shut up. It's not that they know the answer to the question in advance. It's that they're secure, and it's something you can constantly revise, but that they feel that you can you can continually rework your axiomatic system uh, such that it will allow you to continue with the pursuit of the problem. Right? It's not that, oh, I will, you know, the axioms of them were themselves produced. They were produced under the pressure of having to deal with certain problems, and then they were revised under the further pressure. And it's, it's the confidence in saying, if we continue with this, 
we will be able to arrive at something like a clear result on its outcome. And, and those are the kinds of things. It's not that you know what the outcome is in advance, it's that you're confident in the process. So, and, then that, and now I'm going to say one last thing, no one's Because I just, this ties in then to what I was asking you methodologically then. It seems to me then, if it is a matter of confidence in this, the will cannot err, it seems like even if one produced a philosophical argument that you would be persuaded by that actually it's possible that the will can err, you would still advocate this thesis because you think it is beneficial to believe it. Is that fair? I, I think I, I think you can defend. Yeah, I think um, uh, you can justify that confidence as a gesture of confidence that you, in fact, that you can. Uh, in fact, it's harder to justify other kinds of confidence, like the confidence in the self-evident uh, rightness of a principle or or the goodness of nature or some other or the or the integrity of logical argument on its own. Yeah, but as a gesture of confidence, it's not also not to say, I mean, I, it's, it's, even Rousseau maybe is slightly provocative. He says that people are perfectly capable of making mistakes and of being deceived, but, but that it's the process of willing that. So there, there might be errors in the process of, if you like, not eventually making errors. But I, I, I've seen this whole formulation. It's okay, I didn't mean to cut you off, sorry. I have a question about whether Peter is being too hard on the leads. Let me give some analogies. Uh, I think in the realm of aesthetics, we would see some role for elites, right? We would not assume that folk music is aesthetically the highest attainment, nor Lloyd Rice and other musicals. And in sports, we want to watch the elites perform. And in metaphysics, uh, I think we would all agree that chicken soup of the soul is not necessarily the highest attainment of metaphysics. And you, you get the point. Uh, and I can see why in politics you wouldn't want the elite to have privileges as a result in the political system. Why does it follow that there's no role for political vanguards do the people really have the necessary imagination? What, what is so magical about the will of the people in politics if it's not affected in other areas? That you might, I have many questions for you, but that's the first one that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. I bet I'm going to mark them before. Who'll be the first? Um, well, first of all, it's not that there's no role for a vanguard. It's that a vanguard, if it has a role, a defensible role, it's as a catalyst or facilitator or delegate of something like the will of the people, if you're talking about politics. And that, so that's how Lenin describes, rightly or wrongly, that's how he describes his conception of the, of this, you know, uh, the Bolshevik organization. That if it has a value, it's that value. And that gives you a criterion of, of which you can, against which you can measure the value of, of this or that, you know, would-be vanguard type, uh, type organization. And that, I think, is, I, I'm, not, I'm not aware of a better criterion for assessing, you know, the value of a political organization than that. But that, that the, a political organization is not the same as the people itself, that there's a place for organization, that there's a place for then some kind of differentiation of roles and functions, that there's a place for leadership, absolutely agree. There's absolutely a place for leadership. And so in that sense, if you want to call it an elite, okay. But, but we can have a, um, I think we can be much more imaginative about what, how we understand leadership. And, and, that, um, and uh, I'm aware, by the way, in referring to people like Lenin and Robespierre, that I'm talking about leaders, but, um, um, but I think it's very important. I mean, the, 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 the more important examples would be things like the UDF or Lavalas or, or Abakeli today, where, where they have, partly because of the impasses that the Jacobins and Bolsheviks ran into, they recognize that leadership has to be fully, you know, has to be a matter of collective self-leadership, if you like, where individuals play the role of a delegate and, and then get absorbed and changed and transferred. Why that doesn't happen in, in in things like art and sport is because the role of the individual is very different there, I think. Um, I mean, I, is there, an, in terms of
sport, like first of all, they, they, they do seem like fundamentally different kinds of problems. I mean, even Badiou himself would say something like art and, art and science are aristocratic procedures, right? They're not, they're not democratic, they're not about politics, they're about um, exceptional processes. It might be individuals, it might be schools, it might be collectives, but, but in any case, they're not about the people as such. Um, and I, I agree that the, the, the subject of sport is not easily identified with the people, you know, even though um, you know, people have bodies that are capable of sport. So the subject of sport would be something like a team or an individual. Or, but that, we then have to say that we were interested necessarily in the question of the elite. I, I'm not sure that follows, actually. Like, um, certainly if, you, if, if we talk about a commercialized, competitive conception of sport in the way that we're familiar with it now, that might seem to be but I don't think it follows from sport as such. Um, you know, or, or even, it depends what you value in art. I mean, if, if what you value is something you can buy and sell or something that you can understand to relate uh, artistic innovations in the course of a history, particularly if it's oriented towards the development of something like a market, and a market that progresses and, uh, and, and creates new market opportunities you know, for something like an art, uh, the commodification of art, then of course it would be interested in this. Like, um, but it doesn't follow necessarily. I mean, a course that I liked a lot in graduate school started with, um, it's actually a movie that reminds me a little bit of you. It, it starts with a reading of a story of Winnie the Pooh. Um, this will be more to some people than others here in this audience, probably. But, um, but there's a, there's a and this is a guy called Brian Wolf, who's a historian of art at Yale University. He says, what happened in the 19th century is, that um, the field of art was turned into a place which would differentiate between basically elite or good art and crappy folkloric art. And he, he referred, he explained that in reference to the story of the Pooh where, um, sorry to indulge you this childlike thing, but um, where uh, Christopher Robin started to go to school. This is the context. And he's learned how to use the letter A so that the animals encounter you know, two sticks like this and another with a stick across the letter A. And some of the animals, rabbit, for example, can read it. He says, I know what this is, letter A. Uh, Eeyore can also read it, but he's not very sure of it, and he resents rabbit's cleverness. And Winnie the Pooh and Piglet can't read it. They just see three sticks, and they don't care. Well, Piglet cares a bit because he's a little worried. Winnie the Pooh is oblivious, right? <laughs> and what Brian built this entire course on the basis of basically saying what happens to the history of art in the 19th century is the, the differentiation of ways of seeing and, and perceiving and making art in, in line with something like this, different, you know, kind of Bourdieu style, differentiation of a field. And it's very hard once that's happened to undo it. Of course there was an artistic elite before that, etc. But in any case, I think it's not self-evident that art is about, um, about you know, elites or great achievement. I think we certainly choose what to read based on what we think is, is good in most cases, right? And in history of philosophy also, there's a reason why certain philosophers of 500 years ago are writing certain ones are. Yeah. I think to reduce that all the capitalist commodification is pretty dodgy. Well, yeah. uh, here I want to add the East and the relationship to the art. In the West, we think of the art as avant-garde and the racist and politically engaged and whatnot. Uh, here I come back to Gandhi. Uh, uh, not just Gandhi, but Buddhism especially, which is more philosophy than religion. And definition of Zen art, which is absolutely not original, which is writing calligraphy, which everybody writes, which is making the, their skills and then 
conquering the depths, actually, and that is absolutely, the tea cup is a peasant product. So the, the crafts, if you wish, uh, is, so there I think we need also to think of the East and, and in the, all of this, both political engagement, but also the, the uh, expression, uh, and artistic expression and the depth and the uh, aim even of the art, which is accessible, even folk arts. We, they were transferred not by learning, not by analyzing, not by finding, you know, how do you do, what, what's a symmetry, symmetry. It was just through making, and that is accessible to everyone. I just want to say I didn't say anything about originality. I was talking about quality, and that's a different problem, I think. Even if you have folk arts, there's good and bad folk arts sometimes. Yeah. Yes, but collective, the collective and the individual. There's the collective. When it's collective for a long time, the sophistication is always present among the peasant arts. When they all changes, then they don't have ability to analyze and adjust. But the depth or the, the quality of peasant arts is superb, just given a bit of time. So anyway. There's that same question quality applies in the main politics. There's, it's not, because something is egalitarian or inclusive or democratic doesn't mean that there aren't decisions that are more or less good or, or ways of organizing that are more or less effective or powerful. The, the work of assessment in that sense is absolutely universal. I mean, um, it would apply to everything. Okay, so two decisions emanating from the world of evil could be of different levels of quality then. You're saying this or no? But, or, is, or is it that if something's of lower quality is it because it wasn't as intended to the world of evil as a higher quality act? So I'm curious about. Uh, the, um, I, I first of all, I think it's a, it, the the process, the work, the, the you know the movement towards some kind of clarification or generalization of the will goes through different stages and processes. So in the case of the French Revolution, it takes a long time to arrive at say a republican position. It takes three years, right, before they're prepared to say, right, the king has to go. So if, if you're trying to measure it against the criteria that, that emerged through that process, in other words. How far was, were decisions that were made collectively? How far did they rate against the scale of quality that, that comes about through that very process? In other words, how far was this Republican or not? Then, of course, there were, there were those decisions. But, but that, uh, that, that's one thing. The other thing is that I think at any given point, there are, there are things that are more or less, um, and I think this is something that we're so happy to concede, that are more or less directly in line with what, what the general will would will, so to speak. The process of figuring out what that is is a constant process. But assuming, two decisions, well. assuming the two decisions do emanate from the general will, are they both of equal quality? Well, if they're both general, they have the same quality of generality. But after that, it's about uh, it's a, it was quality in relation to what? What is, the, what is this will trying to do? If it's about trying to abolish wage, wage slavery, for example, and a first decision enables you to, say, reduce certain inequalities, and a final decision that allows you to abolish Wage, you know, wage labor altogether. Well, of course, I assume that you would say that the latter was more important. But it, it, the question is, maybe that first one enabled the latter. I mean, I, I, it, it would be abstract to take them out of the context of the process of working. Exactly. You know, just just formally, I mean, two decisions can't uh, emanate from the general will, right? At the same time, you mean? Right. Right. At, the, at a given point, the resolution on general will would have its. But the, the, the point I wanted to make is that Graham, those examples, they're all, I mean, they're spectatorial or at the very least minimally like representationalist. I mean, when you talk about, you, when you talk about quality, I don't, you mean it, if you're evaluating quality, you're not talking about the qualities of a thing, you're saying quality in terms of a value judgment, whether it's aesthetic or moral, but you give the example of sport, or you give the example of art, 
which require spectators. Because like what Peter was saying, like, there is sport and just in terms of like athleticism on an individual level, which requires no audience evaluating whether or not your sport is good. That's different from the spectatorial act of watching the sports stars or watching true. good art. But no. when you have a non-representation account of politics, then this notion of a spectatorial evaluation of what's happening doesn't necessarily apply. If you're saying politics is non-spectatorial, it's only because everyone's participating. But there might be other areas that are non-political where a very small elite are the only ones judging each other's work because they're the only ones who care, right? Right, it's a question of judgment. But but when I think, as I understand Peter's project, and he can say this for himself, but the notion of a willing that, that wills and it's just this process, it doesn't have this refractive or reflective moment of judgment that is evaluating it from some sort of external source or it just, it, that's just not the, that doesn't seem to be the framework in which you're developing this. Maybe I'm wrong. But, but it seems to be this question of quality that you're raising is right. I mean, I see in, in how that would involve an elite form of judgment. But again, it is a question of judgment and evaluation. Um, and it seems like it's different from this notion of the general will. I'm just not sure why the general will should be the ultimate guarantor of quality. That's a good question. I mean, but quality in what sense? Like, Political quality, ethical, I mean, it's a question of value. That becomes a question of morals. And, and but but you end up saying that the, the will of the people is an absolute standard for this judgment. And I don't see why that should be the case. Well, it could be problematic, but maybe that's what you're saying. But it's not a standard that you would sit outside and apply it and say, to what extent is this? A, it's, it's a process that generates justice or the criteria. So uh, the question is, it really, it's about do you participate or not in it? Because if you stay on the out, if you stay from the outside of the think back and, and try and say, well, uh, you know, I have some other criteria, basically, let's say expert criteria. Is this the most efficient way? It's like Kanal saying, and I gave you that, that brief quote, it's not about a couple of smart people saying, this is the best way to build a bridge. Um, I mean, of course, you need engineers and ways of building a bridge. But if, in terms of political, like the emancipatory politics that Kanal is interested in, the, the more important issue and the ultimately the better bridge will, will arise, although it might take generations, but will will involve the, the collective participation of all the people as such. Even if it takes longer, even if the first version of the bridge they build is bad, etc. I don't mean to push it too far down kind of Mao's line to hell with expertise. I mean, let, again, Lenin, and this is an argument that's debated all through the 1920s, but in Russia, is to what extent do we use experts or not, or are they actually enemies of the people because they have specialist knowledge, etc. And the Bolsheviks go back and forth. Uh, but I think Lenin struck a good balance by saying, yeah, of course you need them, but, but not because expertise is valuable um, you know, in itself, it's because it, it facilitates a collective process of, of basically getting a grip on our own history. Right. I have a concrete question for you. Uh, you're talking about it's okay to wait for a while for the will of the people to, to cook or to get to the, the state where it's going to resolve to do something. A state like uh, a situation like the United States right now, presumably the, the will of the public in the United States does not yet meet your criteria of Jacobin visionary, revolutionary behavior. How, how long are you willing to wait? How, how long before the avant-garde gets in and starts trying to stir things up in the United States to reach the sort of actions you'd like to see them? Yeah, well... Um, 300 years. Oh, uh, I mean, uh, the only thing you can do is, is, is participate and contribute. And uh, the United States is full of relatively successful, often relatively local instances in which that's exactly what's happening. The problem is that the country was set up from the get-go in ways to basically make this extremely difficult. I mean, the Constitution is established for that very reason, and this is why Hannah Arendt likes it so much, to, to make the will of the people virtually uh, an unthinkable category. And at every level, it's blocked and dis discouraged and dissuaded. Hence, you know, it's, it's an extremely difficult process to 
imagine. That is impossible. No, I don't think it's any more impossible. This is an example I've given a few times, but you know, the, the political imagination of the people who were otherwise relatively progressive for the first 60 years or so of the American Republic, people like Jefferson and so on up through the 1850s, couldn't imagine a way of ending slavery that wouldn't be catastrophic. Like, given how horrible slavery was, the idea that you have racial reconciliation of blacks and whites who live together in the same place seems literally unimaginable to Mike Jefferson, who was otherwise, you know, and, and who therefore was quite happy to go along with slavery. And the only way you can imagine was by saying, well, one day we'll have to send the, the Africans back to Africa, like the quote-unquote Africans back to Africa. Um, and that was a simple failure of political imagination and a failure of the determination and the will to make it so. You know, you need people like John Brown and others who are determined to force through the change that is required now, regardless of the fact of whether we can imagine ultimately a, a place of reconciliation. So the fact that it's difficult to imagine yet how something like a general will might emerge in the United States, despite the fact that it emerged to some extent in the 1960s in different forms, uh, I think this should be something that we should, we should pay no fundamental attention to. It's just, a, it's just logistical problems are very, very serious in the United States. But, but the question is, what role does the vanguard play in getting us there? A facilitator, like in every case. Well, my question significantly departs from this dispute, so if a lady wants to contribute to this, this I think it's okay. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Okay, so I have a question for Martin or you, Graham. Uh, do you think that it's possible to found a, a, a sort of coherent or persistent system of atheism uh, without referring to metaphysical uh, instances like causation or contingency or necessity. So basically, in other words, is it possible to think of uh, atheism that could be founded strictly materialistic? Well, it depends by what you mean by metaphysical category. Certain, certainly so, such as necessity or principle of causation. No, I mean, I, no, I mean, certainly a number of categories such as necessity or cause or time or space that has been treated metaphysically cannot that would have to be carefully defined, of course, what we mean by metaphysical treatment. But they can be recuperated philosophically for a different logic. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. So I don't think that if the, the idea is not that all of these classical categories are compromised in themselves and we have to have new categories, it's rather that engaging with exactly how they've been articulated and reckon with them in according with a different logic. Uh, so I, uh, I'm not trying to do away with causation or necessity and so on. I'm trying to Did you imply that I just thought more in mind with this strictly positivist concepts like Hitchens or Dawkins or oh, I see. Uh, okay. who are atheists just because of the sheer common sense of the everyday practice and material stuff. And uh, is it possible to build a consistent or coherent system of uh, atheism strictly based on this uh, common sense experience or even scientific experience but nevertheless without different metaphysics? Well, I think that one of the many shortcomings of approaches like Hitchens and Dawkins is precisely that they fail to engage a number of crucial problems that you have to think through if you want to engage with religion and questions of religion in a number of ways. And, and I think, and uh, so the question is whether, well, it's, whether it's you believe it's possible actually to make this system. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, what's interesting with Dennis' work that I was quoting from, what's interesting what he does with Darwin is that he starts out from a breakthrough in science, in evolutionary biology, a new account, and he says, actually, this discovery or this idea of Darwin's is what he calls universal acid, that it burns through everything. You're trying to contain it, saying, like, well, we're just talking about the emergence of life in a scientific discourse, but then it turns out that actually has implications for how we have fought all sorts of metaphysical and philosophical categories. And what's interesting about Dennis is that he doesn't do sort of a positive debunking of philosophy in the name of that. He's trying to then, being a very sophisticated philosopher, reckon with a number of philosophical problems in such a way that would take into account this breakthrough in natural science that is Darwin. And that, I think, is certainly a much more persuasive path. I mean, incidentally, then I think that what Dennett then did in his explicit, more recent engagement with religion, I think, is a lot less powerful than, than what could be done on the basis of his, of his previous work. But So it's always that, like, if you want to do philosophy and engage these questions philosophically, obviously you need to be informed about science and all of these things, but like, that can never be sufficient insofar as you, you, then you have to do the translation work, you have to do the philosophical and conceptual work that allows those insights to have any effect and impact on how you formulate traditional thought. If I could just follow up on that though, I mean, so for you, your theory of succession and your theory of temporality is not a metaphysical theory. I mean, it's how, that's what it's getting I wanted to say before you answer. So to ask that question, like, I've never been comfortable, and I'm less and less comfortable with talking about metaphysics in the capital M and saying that you, you're doing it or not doing it. I mean, like, it would have to be understood exactly what we mean by but metaphysics. Just for example, um, so your theory of the trace that you draw from Derrida is yeah. um, what you call an ultra-transcendental yeah. structure. And so if it's ultra-transcendental, it's not empirical, um, it's not transcendental, yeah. it's ultra-transcendental. So if we have something that we can call an, an ultra-transcendental structure, which is in fact necessary in all cases, for all that exists, for all that is the case, yeah. isn't that a metaphysical theory? And all that can be thought, yeah. And it, I mean, so... I have no problem with that. No, no, but, but that is why I initially asked you. I. It's just a. I mean, it's a technical, philosophical. You know, yeah, I mean, it, it lays claim to operate on the level where the most fundamental philosophical questions have operated. And if you want to call that level metaphysical, which I don't per se have any problem with, and I think that metaphysics, non metaphysics, has, has been a shorthand that's been anything but helpful for philosophical rigor for a long time. Uh, so. Well, I just mean, for example, that um, you know, Kant yeah. prescribes metaphysical thought, metaphysical dogmatism, through transcendental philosophy. So when we call something ultra-transcendental, presumably we break with that critical prescription. I mean, and so perhaps you're trying to, what you call deconstructive logic, is perhaps another form of logic which is not transcendental and which is not metaphysical. Yeah. But I just wonder about whether it's really possible to differentiate a theory of temporality and succession of the trace, like the one that you, that you offer, from metaphysics, or whether it requires you to say, yes, indeed. What I'm saying is that, you know, Derrida offers us a metaphysical theory, which is obviously an incredibly controversial 
But again, it, it would have to depend on how you define the word. If, the, if, if it's the case that that would be a return to pre-credit emotions, I would give a number of reasons why that's not the case, and I'm trying to explain some of them in the chapter on Kantian in, in the book. However, if you define metaphysics in a much more general sense, that is to say, as belonging to the set of questions that concerns the most fundamental level of philosophical inquiry, absolutely. Um, so, but in its, I just find it to be a very unhelpful term unless more specifically defined. I, I would say that I'm, I'm not persuaded or happy with the way it's been used just pejoratively, uh, but uh, so, especially on setting up in the country, it depends, like, does that mean that, like, that's, that's a step back from Kant or a step beyond? I mean, but certainly it involves a renegotiation of the structures of transcendental philosophy, and that's what I'm trying to explain in the book. Uh, I was interested also in Brehm's answer because of his departing from materialism as, uh, as opposed to realism. What would be well, your opinion on the significance of materialism conceived in this way as sort of Hobbesian way? Like there is some matter that stops us from continuing and stuff. Is it the proper basis or even a potential for any kind of constitution of ethics. Were you here yesterday or? Oh no, well, your opinion in general on this. Because yesterday what I was saying is I don't have much use for the concept of matter in this sense because I think it tends to either undercut or overmine others. So I, I don't think there's, I personally don't make any use of the concept of matter or materialism. Just stop there with a really curt answer. I want to, I'll give more if, if I know exactly what you're looking for. No, well, uh, I'm not sure anymore, but uh, whether this, the concept of the matter is substantial in uh, construing the argument for atheism. Could you be an atheist without, without the concept of matter? Without being materialist or vice versa? Sure, I think you could be an atheist object oriented philosopher, I think. There are, there are substantial forms, but there are no angels, no God, no soul. Sure, those are not real objects. Sure, be quite possible. I mean, the, the materialist question, I mean, part of the vocation of materialist philosophy, though, is to, one of the questions that it tries to answer is, what are objects, let's say, made of? And if the answer is other objects, then it, we're left with the same question. And so, I mean, one of the reasons that materialist philosophers will posit something like an atom, and I acknowledge this is like, it's difficult then to differentiate a materialist theory from a theory of the object, but you know, as I think Knox pointed out yesterday, I mean, they tried to give an account of uh, necessary reasons. I mean, they try to give an account of the reasons behind you know material genesis. They try to give an account of, um, in some cases, material origin. Um, and, when materialist philosophers are pushed to either appeal to science or to offer a specific concept of matter, it's because one of the questions that one is faced with when you have a theory of objects is of what are these objects composed? Um, so, but that, that so how does object-oriented philosophy respond to that sort of question, I guess, that materialism tries, even if you ineffectively perhaps, to answer? Like saying I'm inclined towards the infinite regress theory, and in fact science doesn't tell us much more than that, and science reaches arbitrary stopping points from time to time. It never can tell us that we've reached the final stage, and insofar as you give a plurality of properties to the ultimate object, I think you've got the question of what that is composed of. 
So I'm, I'm, fair, I'm fairly comfortable with the infinite regress theory, more than with the negatives that come from positing on final units. Right. I mean, even if we see science, though, push toward an infinite regress, it always, at any particular point, mm -hmm. tries to give us something like an adequate theory right. of you know, material units. So even if we see it moving toward an infinite regress, it doesn't, it doesn't just admit that in the first place, which it seems to me opens a philosophical system to a lot of problems. I mean, or, infinite regress is an idea, right? I mean, it's, it's, it has an idea for guiding the search, but it can't be thought of as an object. I don't see how you would say that it's the quality of an object as such. It's something that you would use to guide our investigation of but it also seems that the more important than the what is the material unit, it seems like where you're pushing, is it's not providing a material unit, it's providing a causal, a formal cause, or like a, a, a framework of material constitution. And that's what's interesting, I think, that's, that's what's fascinating about Martin's work, is that there is no, you, you have no theory of units, you have no theory of matter. You have a, you have a formal ontology. You have an account of Process of how these things work that explain, but it, it, need, but it, it requires like, no material unit. It's about the, it's about giving a principle of, of reason, like I was saying yesterday. It's about explaining the emergence of things and the destitution and how that happens. Yeah, but without being forced to a transcendental or extra. But you can also understand by a perspective of the logic, that is to say, a logic that rethinks the basic concepts through which we make sense of ourselves and the world. Yeah, and that's. Neither transcendental in some sense, neither metaphysical in a critical sense, but it's a speculative logic. And that's why I engage and try to do a set of consequences from right. fundamental concepts. Right, so you call your paper radical atheist materialism. Yeah. So clearly, yes, and, that's, to it and, and that also then has to, in one way, it has, this is the way it would play itself out in relation to <coughs> materialism. That doesn't mean that that's the only domain in which that logic is operative mm -hmm. or can be drawn consequences in relation to, mm -hmm. but certainly to think through a number of set of, a set of questions. That is associated with question of materialism. Mm -hmm. This is how I would proceed on the basis of the speculative logic that I'm pursuing. Right. So that's, but it's not a matter of suturing then the entire argument, the entire logic to, to materialism. So that would be my preliminary way of, uh, of answering uh, those questions. And I'm more satisfied with that than what I initially said in response to Nathan, which I was slightly horrified by actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad I got to say this and that. Um, <laughs> But I was just puzzled about the um, infinite regress is certainly not what Kant's comes. It's the, it's the idea that the infinite regress goes the other way. Uh, well, maybe I missed something. Just the idea that you can pursue, keep pursuing like a, the division of particles. Oh, oh particles. Okay, 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 but, okay. but the, the, the infinite progress then goes. Except that in Kant, it's part of the Antonian antinomies. And I'm saying it's more than that. I'm saying yeah. it's you can actually deduce that there must be an infinite regress, because otherwise you're left with some final present and nucleus that explains all the others. And I don't think that's, that's attainable. But I have a question for Martin, but this is a good moment to ask it. Yeah. Doesn't your concept of arc materiality, despite what Knox said about not having a material unit in the philosophy, doesn't the concept of arc materiality allow you a chance to break out of this Kantian dualism of human and world as the only relation? Can't you talk about, in your system, can't you talk about the relation between material things themselves in a sense that Derrida doesn't even allow us to do? See the resources for this in your in your work. No, I mean this is that's uh, that's an, I haven't thought about it in quite those terms precisely. I think for the reasons I was uh, I was talking about them, it's a matter of speculative logic. So the the set, for example, when I pursue it in relation to the question of evolution and so on, it's still 
then in relation to a set of questions through which uh, that we have articulated that has to do with the emergence of life and so on, uh, to displace problematic into the terrain that you're operating, where we're actually talking about just relations between objects, that um, uh, I have to think a lot more about how it would relate to that. It's uh, well, because it seems like there will be necessity to radicalize physics in your philosophy because you can't just have two inert things colliding into each other because the two inert things are already radically finite and yeah. I'm not I'm not saying that you yeah. should do this, I'm saying it's possible. Yeah. Because the one argument that was that was drawn to me is still that that uh, the one argument that, that I think is, is is interesting has when it says that these breakthroughs in evolutionary biology is actually means that through Accepting first that the strictures of transcendental philosophy, we realize nevertheless that this limited perspective of transcendental has to come into being itself, and thereby we arrive uh, realizing that time cannot be reduced to transformative evolution. So, um, but um, the line you're taking it in, I mean, it's not the line uh, I've been uh, I've been thinking of or doing, but it's only it's interesting to see how that the compatibilities and the differences. Were you talking about Whitehead at all in your Deleuze-Bergson book? Uh, I'm being continually urged to read Whitehead, but I have not yet done so, so I, I can't say anything about that. Nathan has been urging me to do so for more than a year, so maybe it will happen. Actually, uh, so to, uh, to uh, defend co-dependent questions, one would be, do you think it's possible to be atheist without criticizing any specific religion? This would be one. Question and then, then the second actually would be it was already at the apex of the of the our old metaphysics and Hegel's uh, late lectures on uh, religion that the absolute religion so Christianity in the guise of Protestantism had the absolute one so this is the the only for him uh, already absolutivarian he says you know but this religion is somehow seems to the overcome and the ethos, so the substantial ethos has actually is disintegrating also altogether. My, my question would be then is um, even if we do away with, uh, with religion or uh, with religion in the guise then of um, ideology and then critiquing of ideology, isn't actually, do, do you think that then a radical atheist and materialist position is actually not somehow trying still to get um, to construct some kind of ethos that are substantial or not. So with ideology, let's say we, we could do away, but what's with the ethos? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, I would say that radical atheism does not necessarily imply a critique of religion in the sense that it doesn't, it tries to re-describe saying that the desire that motivated religion as well was, was a desire for more for life rather than immortality. So it doesn't, then it might well be the case that uh, in a number of instances I um, would want to criticize religion or a certain religious formation of a formation in society. But why I'm resisting that move is, which would be a traditional atheist move in my case, is that, as I said towards the end of the paper, we would depoliticize the question of social struggles. I have to do any number of instances in which I 
would support a struggle in the name of religious ideas over one in the name of liberal, secular, democratic values. And that's not inconsistent with those things. I don't think that, that struggle is motivated by the religious elements they profess, but that they are too a struggle uh, with material aims that emanate from, from a care for survival. So, um, in that sense, it's not trying to construct, the ambition is not to criticize one ethos and replace it with another, but rather with uh, uh, rethinking certain constitutive features that would go into any ethos. And incidentally, I think that this is, uh, has certain affinities with how Hegel proceeds about it, because the last word in Hegel is not absolute religion understood as Christianity, but <coughs> absolute knowledge, which grasps the truth of religion, but it's not itself religion. Um, and as a formal move, so th and then absolute knowledge itself doesn't then construct another ethos. It just allows us to understand the internal contradictions in the constitution of any socius or ethos. And that type of speculative move is, has more in common with what I'm doing than the next to final stage. And that actually, 16-year-old Echel also now comes to Miran's uh, paper, but actually then in Hegel, so just, I hope not to be too boring, so if in Hegel, so historically, if religion has not been realized, yeah. actualized, there's actually also philo philosophy itself is actually not to be realized. Because if this step has not been taken, then philosophy or hist proper uh, history of philosophy is not possible. Then in a sense, if religious world this in substantial uh, ethical way disintegrate, then in some sense philosophy itself has been cancelled out, right? Uh, and so this would actually then somehow lead again to this kind of fictitious projection like Miran has, uh, uh, has got with, the, uh, with this uh, French novel. That actually then we have really just to think this atheist world as some kind of very basic, minimal kind of living together, which is uh, and being a uh, uh, kind of anatomy life or encyclopedia life, but nothing more. Right. Um, what I would say, I mean, that's all very uh, rich and it's a great question. What I would say, though, is that I don't if I understood you correctly, I don't understand absolute knowledge in Hegel to be something that a telos that we're trying to arrive at, I understand it retrospectively, that is to say, absolute knowledge just accounts for how you were able to say all the things that Hegel was saying. I mean, it's just, it has a methodological status in that it traces the path that the philosophical exposition, for example, in phenomenology has undertaken. So absolute knowledge, in this sense, Hegel um, is, is um, uh, by the mere fact of having written the phenomenology, that is absolute knowledge, and, and that that's it is taking into account how, how that knowledge was possible. That that constitutes kind of absolute knowledge. In that sense, it's it's it ref, it's retrospective rather than perspective. So in that sense, it's not something we yet haven't arrived at. It's it's the possibility of of philosophical insight and philosophical reason. Um, but, um, well, trying to generalize your respective positions and trying to figure out the commonality, it seems that uh, 
all three of you regard uh, vitalism as sort of an impasse, and this also think, seems to be, as Martin has, has elaborated, a difference to where it's Quentin Massou's concept. And I think that there is a strong commonality of injunction of certain form or formalism in all three of you, be it negativity, be it general, generality of will, or be it retreat of objects. Um, it's, it's just a comment or, or general remark, maybe, uh, an impractical remark, but it, that, that seems to be like the, the red thread uh, between three of you. I'm not sure for Mira, about mathematics, I think this is a real crux in both of your projects, and I mean, for me, uh, the real challenge that your account faces has to do with your account of the infinite, your concept of the infinite, and on the basis of your critique of the, of the infinite, uh, your reaffirmation of a philosophy of finitude. And I think the Bob you is in, indeed you know, a very pertinent person to, to raise, because Bob Yu's response to deconstruction, which I think he conceives of as a response to deconstruction. It's not that Baudieu simply rejects or ignores deconstruction, rather he tries to construct an ontology which is adequate to Derrida's critique. 
his critique quite precisely of the notions of positive infinity. And so radical atheism, I mean, your book operates, in my opinion, through a dichotomy between positive infinity, models of positive infinity that you critique, uh, and a model of negative infinity that you affirm, what you call the infinitely finite, um, which I think is modeled by your concept of succession. Uh, the whole point of Plavdu's set theoretical ontology is to work within a Cantorian concept of the infinite, which is neither the concept of a positive infinity or what you often refer to as a fullness, mm -hmm. kind of kingdom, nor is it uh, a negative infinity which could be thought through succession. So, for example, when you define, if you offer a definition of an infinite set as a set which can be put into a one to one correspondence with one of its parts, and you can formally demonstrate the possibility of thinking a set in that way. You have a positive definition of an infinite set, uh, but it's not a positive definition of a positive infinity. Um, in fact, you know, the challenge of thinking through that definition destroys any model of positive infinity. That's the, the point of the power set, the, the consequences that Bob draws from the power set axiom for thinking the infinite. Um, so I guess I wonder, how then you would respond to that model of the infinite rather than the critique that you level against theological notions of a positive infinity? That's my question for you. But then for you, Peter, um, also about both you to some degree, but just also mathematical formalism, which in some ways you seem really invested in because you want an axiomatic uh, model of politics. Um, in some ways, indeed, you know, a priori model of politics, even though you affirm the priority of practice. Um, at the same time, though, I mean, you've leveled for years now quite harrowing critiques at Bob you of his mathematical abstractions that, in your opinion, are not sufficiently concrete um, and don't relate directly enough to practical exigencies and situations, etc. And so I just, I wonder how you reconcile in your own thought, uh, on one side, your real reliance on mathematical formalism and that kind of mathematical rationalism as a way of thinking about, you know, political a priori principles, which you just defended in your discussion with Martin. But at the same time, your critique on precisely these grounds of what you consider overwhelmingly sort of abstract character of Bob Hughes thought. Um. Um, well, a number of things. Uh, now, to begin with, I'd like to clarify the notion of infinite finitude that I pursue in radical atheism. Um, it's not simply the negative infinity of we going on and on and on, which also refers to the grasping that finitude is not a privation, it's not a limitation. So that's why infinite finitude is grasping as, as uh, that type of condition. And it seems to me um, that the point you're raising about, well, what, what, how does this relate to a Cantorian infinity which is neither positive nor negative, to answer that question, it would first have to be clarified for me in what way that challenges what I'm doing, because insofar as I understand my limited competence, the formal 
inside, there is no settable sets. That is to say that like, totalization is not possible for non-spurious reasons, which is basically what, what it establishes formally, as far as I can see. That is to say, you can totalize, but that's not a, um, an effect of unlimited cognition. It's because there is no settable set. So totalization is in, in principle impossible for non-spurious reasons. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that as a form of logical insight, in that register, I think it's totally compatible with what I'm saying. It's not, obviously, because I'm not pursuing my investigations in that realm of mathematics, but I don't see how a formal logical insight like that would pose a problem for anything I'm saying, since I'm also saying conversation is impossible in principle, not because of my limited cognition, but because there is no totality. But you oppose that impossibility of totalization to any concept of the infinite. And what I'm saying is that consequences that what you draws from Cantor are that we have a concept of the infinite, which is in no way opposed to but, the fact that it's impossible to constitute a totality. Right. On but, the contrary. But I only understand it that I oppose it to the notion of positive infinity. I don't oppose any notion of infinity. Obviously the notion of infinite finitude is a notion of infinity. Certain readings of what Hegel means by true infinity would be compatible with understanding. So that's what I'm saying that one would have to say like how does this category pose a problem for me, since I don't see any of my arguments hinging on me opposing that. It's only the model positive infinity that I'm mobilizing against with my notion. So, uh, but how do you, if, how you, you could, if you could say more about what you think is the, how it intervenes with a set of arguments that I'm making. Because just as a formal, well, for instance, I think um, I can't see the, because it's not—it's an argument against positive infinity. It's not an argument against any conception of any concept of infinity. But you make an argument, though, um, for the sort of formal necessity of what Nancy indeed calls, you know, finite thinking after Heidegger and after Derrida, mm -hmm. and you, to some extent, ground that argument on the basis of critique of the possibility of any positive infinity. And I'm just saying it's a—one might say, you know, it's a false binary that's being deconstructed in that instance, that those are not the only two options, and that so the rejection of one does not necessitate the other. Um, but, I mean, it would also... So, so how does the other alternative, though, pose so, a problem sure. with because, it would, because it would also bear on the sort of um, priorities, I think the difference of priorities that um, is evident between you and Peter. So, for example, uh, a category like truth, which for both of you has a necessary, has a relation to the infinite, um, uh, one might prioritize a category like that um, when thinking about political practice, etc., rather than care for moral survival. Why? Because care for moral survival is bound up with what you consider the necessary status of finitude. Um, and if one breaks with that necessary status of finitude, then one will need another sort of criterion for political praxis, which in Babu's case is truth, which is an infinite process. So that's constructing the truth. But so that clarifies something for me because, again, when, and, it, and this is a translation I've never understood, in Badu, how you move from Cantorian infinity, there's no set of all sets, to categories like eternity and immortality. I mean, they seem to me to have nothing in common. And again, I would have to be shown how the formal Cantorian insight that there's no set of all sets while it is not one of the alternatives that I'm talking about, how it poses a problem for the 
the motive infinitude that I'm talking about. However, when Badiou moves from Cantorian infinity, no settable sets, to things like immortality, eternity, and in the ethics book, that even being then opposed to something like survival, it seems to me that Jordan is explaining how he can make that translation, how you can translate something like Cantorian infinity into immortality. I, 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 I mean, it's, it's because um, what Badiou thinks of as a you know, a truth procedure, the practice of the infinite construction of truth, is something, it's possible for that uh, process to be infinite and to participate in the infinite, therefore to not be finite, insofar as it's an ongoing procedure, therefore it does not presuppose a totality or any instance of absolute fullness. At the same time, it can be infinite and therefore non-finite. It's not that the mathematical model necessitates any model of politics. It's that it does give you a concept which allows you to think uh, politics um, in relation to the infinite in the same way that you think politics in relation to the finite, which also relies on a quasi-mathematical model. So, so what is the critical force of that concept in relation to the conceptual constellation that I mobilize. That's still, it's very hard for me to answer this question unless, I, unless that has shown to me what the critical force of that model is for what I'm saying. You can also ask for like why for bad views in like in a practical empirical sphere, this isn't something like a, a regulative idea in the communist sense, which is a term by the way he started using recently in relation to communism. You just speak up into the term. Just, sorry, I was just saying that ask why this isn't a regulative idea in cognitive sense when you get the difference between sort of let's say pure and applied mathematics when you apply cancer to um, truth procedures or something like this what we're really talking about is I mean, it's not a regulative idea because we have a real actual concept of infinity it's a formal concept not a it's a formal it's concept. a demonstrable concept oh, it's demonstrable it's but it only remains that infinity is so it's not a regulative ideal in so far as I mean there's the concept of something that is unending, you know, unending, something that goes on interminably, and in principle, he says, yes, the truth can continue. As long as people may continue, it can continue. And in that sense, there's no reason why it would come to an end. But that's not the same thing as the as the core, the crux of the whole Cantorian move, which is to assert an, an infinity. And this is where the difference is, I think, with you, is that, and this is, I think, uncontroversial, but he says that the fact that something could, in principle, continue interminably, you know, one plus one plus one, Never, no matter how long you let that run, you'll never arrive at something like the infinite. The you can only have an infinite if you assert that something, that, uh, 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 it's not positive in the sense you were saying, Nathan, but it is positive as, a, as infinite because it precisely it exempts itself from the succession. The idea that there can be a number that does not succeed, or a limit or a null, um, which has to be posed as an axiom. There's no way to derive from that from anything else. And it seems to me that at least as far as I've got with your book, that you prescribe that possibility in principle by saying that all that is thinkable is, you know, is absolutely bound by the necessity of being finite. In other words, it's an unconditional affirmation of all thought that it subjects itself to finitude in a way that precisely Cantor rejects. In, in other words, Cantor must be doing something unthinkable by, by the criteria that you seem to be proposing, which and I guess my problem there would be, well, Cantor gives, even if you, and a lot of people are resistant saying, well, there's no justification, it's like a wild assertion. Uh, but it is nevertheless, uh, it has a kind of axiomatic uh, 
coherence with the rest of the system. It, it fits in the, the, and it turns out to be magnificently productive and coherent, even though the intuitions can still say it doesn't make sense, I don't accept it, because I can't construct the move, right? Whereas in your case, the necessity that binds everything to this condition of absolute finitude seems to me unjustified, or at least I don't see what it is that asserts this. Like, why is it, given that we, I mean, already today we've accepted there are things that don't succeed. You know, why then should everything be bound by this finitude? What does it stand? What makes it ultra transcendental in this very strong sense that you seem to give it? Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say like the argument about thinkability in the book concerns like the regulative idea structure, where you say like, well, we cannot attain absolute fullness, whatever name we want to give to that, but it's still it's thinkable and desirable as such. And all I'm saying is that like, it's unthinkable in the sense that it's inseparable from absolute emptiness. And it's that notion of infinity and the different things attached to that notion of infinity I'm targeting. And that's why I'm insisting that this Cantorian notion of infinity, which does not have bearing on those questions, it does not have bearing on something like our idea our supposed striving for fullness or peace that we can never achieve but it's what directs our action. It just doesn't have bearing on those things. And that's it's in relation to those sets of arguments that I'm applying that it's not thinkable as such because when you think it as such, it's inseparable from its absolute opposite. So, so that's, and that's why I'm insisting on this, that like, there needs to be just a contouring insight as a form of thing that there's no set of all sets and so on. While that's a different problem than the sets of things I'm engaging, I don't see why it poses a problem for the sets of propositions that I'm advancing. I'm not saying that I'm just asking Like a, it's a limitation you 
once you've made this Cantorian move, you can't go back to the idea that, uh, that numbers are made up of one plus one plus one. They're, they're not. They're made up of, first of all, they're made up of the rational, logical, absolutely unimpeachable implication that there is an infinite expanse of numbers which we can coherently carve up with the, the numbers that we have at our disposal, which are, that, as you all said, are a tiny little bit of the possible mathematical universe out there. And a finite number is just a most pathetically small little fraction of that, right? Yeah, but why, but how that could become in any way primary or originary or like an, a binding condition on the thinkable? But first of all, I still haven't seen why I said I don't think Cantorian poses a problem. I don't see why I need it for the sets of claims I'm talking about, which is about nature, which is yeah, about life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, about about the universe. Universe. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's about, that's What's what the idea concept of time? That seems so, like that's what you need to hear. Yeah, and because I, as I said earlier today too, I'm talking about if you grant me succession, uh -huh. I'll give you all of this, you know? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's, that's the basic move. And uh, so that's again why I don't. Uh, and then my question in turn would be again this translation of, of the Cantorian infinity into these categories of immortality and eternity that I don't see. So that, that would be my counter-critical question, but that's a separate discussion. I'll, I'll grant you a succession if you'll grant me exception from succession. <laughs> exception from succession, then you grant that you've considered life. That's exactly how he defines it at the end of the logic. Of life. Yes. He said, what is it? He ends this book by Lots of by saying, what is life? Right? Yeah. What is it to live? Qu'est-ce to vivre? And to live is to live for an, 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 an idea which accepts itself from the temporality of, of, of the world, of bodies and languages, of, of succession as you understand it. In other words, it, it, it's, di it's diagonal to time. It has, or it, it, it's something whose, whose status is not fundamentally temporal. It, might, it has a secondary temporality in the sense that the body that is required for this life to live, and he acknowledges this is a, in a way a big concession that he's made in relation to being an event. There's a temporality of that body. The body has organs, it lives, it dies, comes into being, it passes away, etc. And there, I'm sure you'd be happy with that part. But it's the body of formalism, which is itself an exception to that, and, has, and according to him at least, has to be thought, in fact, demands to be thought as an exception. But what, again, what, but how, what is the translation between something like the formal insights of Cantorian mathematics and like an idea that you live for politically. Like this, the, the exceptional status of that idea and the exceptional status of like mathematics, even if it has ontology, what is the, like how does the translation work? Because of, it's, 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 it's ontology, right? But it's also the introduction of the cut, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not just that there's no set of all sets, mathematicians knew that before Cantor. The point is that he demonstrates it with the theory of cardinality and he's able to establish the space between the first infinite aleph zero, the first cardinal number, and the second one. And by establishing that, and establishing that they are each infinite in themselves, and that there is a void between them that is also the side of the infinite, he can then, as I understand it, I don't, I'm not as well versed in all that, but it's the truth, the concept of a truth that interrupts, that introduces the void into a pre-existing situation or makes that void reveal itself, that's the analogical moment. You know, I mean, he doesn't like analogy, or he says it's not an analogy, but is, I mean, am I on the right track here in all of this? <laughs> like, is it this, the idea that the truth of this, like the infinite, that, that it introduced, it's introduced, and it restructures a new situation? I mean, again, even the concept of truth and of you atomic, it's just a, it's a concept of the generic, which is, you know, requires like, a concept of infinity, like he draws upon. 
etc., which requires a sequence of mathematical procedures, which you know moves through Cantor through Gödel, you know, to Cohen, etc. I mean, it's a it matters because you know any concept of the finite, which you draw upon, and any concept of the infinite, I mean, is at stake in these questions about mathematics. I mean, concepts of what is at stake with Badiou is that the concept of the infinite becomes a properly mathematical concept, not a mystical or a religious concept. And you argue that, you know, this sort of, so I understand that you're, you, you claim to be attacking a certain, a certain concept of the infinite, but the concept, the reason that you operate with a negative definition of the infinite, or of the finite, and that you think you require one, and you offer a negative account of succession, etc., is because you know, the reason that I call it a positive concept of the infinite is just that it's a concept of the infinite which is not arrived at through negation. Nor is it a positive infinity in the sense that it's a closed uh, fullness. Um, and so if we can have, if it's possible to think that sort of infinity, I do think that that poses some problems in your model because you don't, in fact, limit yourself to the sphere of life in radical atheism or the sphere of natural or organic entities. In fact, you say that the structure, the finite structure of the trace that you describe is an ultra-transcendental structure of everything that exists. Um, and so if we have a concept but that allows us to think why that is not necessarily the case, why we don't necessarily have to think finitely in that sense, then I think that, I mean, I think it requires a response, is all. I think it does, you know. But Peter, I wonder, if, um, come back to the, the second part of the question for you. Would you actually grant yourself an exception from succession? Well, I, I mean, but, oh, I don't know, but I, I think the, the articulation when you're asking why the world has Cantorian mathematics have, was that have related to so Well, I, I think that is a perfectly fair question, and, and I think Becky's answer would probably be um, it answer it relates to it insofar as you want to think the being of the truth in question, but not in any other way. So that like the process of truth is a fundamental procedure. So the full word, you know, is procedure de vérité, right? And he drops the procedure de often, but it's a process or a procedure. And what's at stake in the truth procedure in art or politics is nothing to do with mathematics. And you don't have to know anything about mathematics to pursue it, etc. It's all about the imminent process of pursuing something like, let's say, equality or something along those lines. Um, if, though, you want, as a philosopher, to step back and think, well, what is the being of this thing? Well, then, like any former being, once you've made that easy move, then, then you, you are confronted with thinking, thinking mathematically, and, and the, the breakthrough, at least that he sees, is that, is that this post-Kantorian mathematics is interested in gives you a concept of the being of the generic uh, procedure, right? Um, and that's why, you know, that's why he proves it. Anyway, but only there, and it, it could be that strategically it's not that important to do that, I don't think he would emphasize that it is that important, but, but that's where it would lie. And because he also thinks that the only way to go back to this phrase, clear and distinct, is to think something in, in terms of what it is, rather than how it appears, which is always murky, um, then he would want, you know, he, as a philosopher, he would want to orient it back that way, along for the same reason that Plato wanted to do the same thing. So, that would be why. Um, no, uh, no, I mean, so just to take a concrete example, I mean, now it's been a while since I read the ethics book, but take the, the notion, the distinction there that you move from being sort of 
animal and not a subject, and you become a subject, and you become immortal in some sense by living for an idea. Um, it's precisely that type of notion of the idea of the immortal that seems to me widely different from these contouring and formal insights. And it's, it's, but it's only then when he makes that move that it seems to have bearing on the set of things I'm talking about, like what does it mean to live for an idea? What is it that motivates struggle? What is it that like animates commitment, if you will? That's a set of concerns. And then that's exactly the direction to which he seems to have recourse to the notion of immortality rather than infinity. And I don't think that's accidental because this, this formal notion of infinity from Catholic mathematics just doesn't have any purchase on what would animate a commitment or an engagement or what it would mean to live for an idea. Uh, so. Well, he would disagree that. He would say that, uh, as he says, in fact, in the ethics itself, towards the end, that, that to live for an idea or to live as an immortal, in other words, without concern for mortality or the concerns of mortality. Yeah. So this is the most intense kinds of affects, right? The most intense kinds of enthusiasm. And exactly. But I would say, but I, the, the argument I would make is that what we have been calling immortality, that that itself is animated by a character survival. That is to say, it's strategically good for the, for the idea because it's going to make you more active, more efficacious in the actual concrete world of struggles that you're engaged in. Only if you're limiting what it is to be to the character survival, you would say it's precisely different. But the meaning of a mathematical number has nothing to do with the being that concerns you in the struggle. This is like, so I don't, this seems to me like, but that's, why, that's why his ontology is powerful or problematic, is that it absolutely severs the link between being and anything that you might care about. Awesome. The, the, reason that, the reason that you, um, when you make your argument that what we actually care about is moral life rather than immortality, and you deconstruct the concept of immortality from within, you do so on the basis of an attack on, you know, a positive model of an infinite totality. Yeah, and then and so when you show that we in fact that it in fact presupposes finitude, etc., you do that through the deconstruction of that concept. And that is not the concept of infinity that's at stake. So when you say that we can show that when we say this and this and this, we're actually doing it on the basis of a desire for survival, I mean, the structure of that argument, in my opinion, presupposes that is the only model of the infinite. But, but what I'm saying in relation to that, though, is that, again, the Cantorian infinity is not a version of that infinity, which I, well, I don't think is relevant for my argument. What I'm saying is that when Madhu goes on and translates it into Cantorian immortality when it concerns his living for an idea, then he enters the terrain that I'm talking about. And that would be really important for that. But I, I, I'm very sympathetic to Martin's point here, because the, insofar, yes, Badiou uses a language to live. He's already conceded something in advance without knowing it to Martin's formal argument. Because Martin's to say to live as an immortal. Like, that's a formula Badiou uses. You know, then, and then Martin. But that means that, that Martin but defines it doesn't, life as care for survival. But Martin so defines life, but he defines it as a formal category. And in, insofar as Badiou talks about an investment in that truth procedure, proceeding, carrying forward, moving, like sustaining, persisting, then you're already he's already in, in Martin's framework. So the question then is, why does Badiou use the language of immortality? Why does he use the language of undying? Why does he use that? If he doesn't want to make a concession to vitalism. Like, why does he even use that language? He, well, that, the narrow answer is he uses it in the context of logics of worlds, insofar as he also wants to expand his account of being with an account of <coughs> appearing in our existence. So, mm -hmm. the 
bigger concession is why does he start talking about existence? Once he's in the domain of existence, right. and he accepts that there are things that live, that are, are included in the field of existence, mm -hmm. then he wants to appropriate the concept of living and tear it away from any kind of vitalist account. All he means, though, mm -hmm. I think, by living there is thinking, really. Think, to, li to, think as, to live as an immortal means, you know, remember what a subject is, is a formalism, right? That's right. all it is. Yeah. A body is a, and a body is not organic, or it could be organic, but it's generally not. And it's more like an assemblage of powers or capacities that are required for that formalism to pursue its consequences, right? So this, to say that the, the body in question, let's say the organization of party or whatever it is, lives or dies is a metaphor. It's such right. A, but what, I mean, but what of Matt, Ben used favorite affects that he often uses is the concept of tenacity. You know, or things being tenable. And there's no accent to one of Martin's favorite adjectives is untenable, that he uses it time and again in his book. This is untenable. This is untenable. But it's an interesting confrontation because insofar as bad use infested in a notion of tenacity, yeah, it hold the line, then it's open to what, I mean, then it, 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 it falls into something that Martin can apply as critique to. Oh, it's the logic of survival, too. I mean, the being tenacious, persisting, you know, resisting. These are all affects. If, if we talk about the universe, affects, affects that don't make sense. But by the same stroke, your critique, though, Martin, is still purely formal. Because it doesn't, it doesn't say, it gives absolutely no, it gives no like, content about whether or not we should hold or not hold or oh, what the investment is. Because it seems to be described. Yeah, it's just descriptive. It's formal and formal. I don't remember No, I mean, well, this may be going on a little too long on this point. I'm interested in here, but uh, and we probably should wrap up fairly soon. But just, I mean, when Badiou and Martin define life, they mean two completely different things. They're two incompatible definitions of what life but means. Neither is life. So when Badiou right. speaks of life, he doesn't subject himself to Martin's critique. Why? Because he defines life precisely as not survival. And he's able to do that because he has another model of what life can be, that is, attachment to uh, the construction of an infinite generic truth. But and that is the only thing that's constitutive of life, whereas for Martin, formally, the only thing which is constitutive of life is survival as a finite being. For Badiou, that's what it is to just be... It has nothing to do with life. But isn't Bedu's tenacity like Martin's survival? Fine, their lives aren't the same, but... My, my point would just be that Martin says that um, the sort of definition that Bedu would offer of life is in fact conceptually incoherent, and he deconstructs the conceptual logic of it because he presupposes that that definition of life would require a sort of uh, positive infinity on the model of a re religious or mystical uh, fullness totality. And all I'm saying is once you have coherent concept of the infinite does not require that sort of model, then you can define, you can offer a definition of life which, you know, links it to that model of the infinite, whereas you simply offer a definition of life which links it to a certain model of the finite. It's a, it's just a, the it's question a disagreement. Is, the question is well, whether there's like an existentially coherent notion of the transfinite. I mean, this, I, I still don't quite, I mean, this is the same thing Martin's saying, I don't get it, but like, why is there necessarily an existentially uh, coherent, coherent notion of the finite? No, I'm turning the question around. Yeah. I mean, we can turn the question around and say, why is there an existentially coherent notion of the finite? For example, that is, once you have this sort of concept of the infinite, how do you, how do you presume to demonstrate that human life is necessarily mortal, for example? I don't think it's philosophically possible, in fact. 
I really don't. This empirical observation that you can't demonstrate it philosophically. In light of your saying, again, I just don't understand how formal mathematical definition of infinity can have any bearing on. You have a formal life. logical concept of the problem. These are formal logical things that would pertain to life, but like that, there's no sensible sense that would have anything to do with the notion of infinity that you could link to immortality in, in the way that it happens, and that would, I, I just don't. All that matters there, in the use of the word immortal, is simply the logic of exception. Like to, to be accepted from the logic of mortality is viable. When we, we define life precisely as that, as a, as a, it is possible yeah. to be accepted from this. And on the model, like the logic of fidelity that he gives, this is why I don't think it's the same answers to, like, the tenacity of the view is not quite the same as survival view, because it's, the model is, again, for him, is the determination to follow through on a problem. Like fidelity says the paradigm is the mathematician's determination to pursue a problem to its end, right, and push it. But why would you try to why that requires no life? I mean, like, like anything that's capable of a rational thought will do that. It requires no, you know, the, 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 the argument is not whether they're the same. The question is if, if you can say what you're saying by following through without presupposing tacitly what I'm calling care. If it's even clear, like if you're not tacitly assuming a minimal care when you're talking about, like it's about following through, it's about hanging in there, being faithful, if not all of that, but you haven't granted any conceptual status in the reasons. There's a capacity, there's absolutely a positive point of departure all the way through your which is the power of the power of thought to determine its own course. That, if you want, like, that you, if I was like, this is not without care. Care for what? Care for survival? Or care, care for, for the, the thought truth? itself to survive following through? Yeah, whatever. Jesus is just redundant. Plot doesn't need that. It, 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 why should it need it? The concept needs to follow through. But thinking that needs to follow through is imminent to what thought does. In order to think this problem, it has to it has to persist and continue. But that's just that doesn't require something like a more than we care. Anyway, perhaps you should. Yeah. yeah okay. But this, this is all very stimulating. We will have the chance to begin talking about this thing. But for by you, it seems that. Life, in a sense, is radically material in so far as it's tangential to time. And basically, the, the history of life is history of devolution or degradation, whereas for you, I guess, it's a history of evolution uh, and then survival in that sense, that, it, that it's an adaptation to the history of materiality. I think there's that, and I think it's, there's a pessimism about that that's maybe partly contingent. 
question that you asked at the beginning of the about quality. Like one of the things that I still think is valuable about that used way of thinking history is that it, it provides like a very sharp way of, of, of basically like refusing your, your question in a way by basically saying, or another way of remembering the argument that history is the history of counterinsurgency, like this Balkan said, as people always used to say, or history is the story told by the victors. So the question of quality, like how do you, if you think of it in terms of history, like 500 years ago, so or certain philosophers are valuable in the light of, or certain artists are important, always in the light of, of, of a certain kind of his, like a history that we tell ourselves about the, about the great uh, conceptual or artistic innovations, right, which have shaped our capacity to judge, right? not only shaped the field that they're part of, but our capacity to evaluate that field, in which itself is part of you know, what allows us to evaluate ourselves as people who can assess quality, et cetera, et cetera. But that story is so hard to disentangle from, from the triumph of, this, of what has come to be the status quo, right? That, that what I like about someone like Rancière's Robedius, but Rancière in a way even more brutally, is the total refusal of all of that. Like, even if he says he has no chance of art, good art like, finds a way of blurring the gap between art and non-art. But more importantly, in a way, he says basically anyone can do great art, right? The, the premise of his radical equality is that anyone can write Shakespeare, anyone can write Beethoven's music, anyone can do anything. Uh, and whether or not this is actually true, it's like a point of departure, another totally different to history or the actual constitution of, or distribution of skills and talents and capacities. But as a point of departure of understanding what's capable of now, what we can do now, or what, for example, people are interested in what is great art or what is art or these questions, what they could use as a, as a way of orienting their work or their attempt to understand or evaluate would be a, a principle like that, where we, we assume, for example, that you can memorize Shakespeare and doing that you, in a way, write Shakespeare, or that there's no fundamental difference between memorizing Shakespeare and writing Shakespeare. The fact that anyone can be Shakespeare doesn't mean that everyone is Shakespeare. And I would not say that Badiou refuses my question at all. There's a difference between a, a truth event and a pseudo-event. Badiou himself has a fairly elitist sense of great works. He himself says at the beginning of the English translation of the event that I've written a great work of philosophy. He doesn't mean everyone's work is a great work of philosophy. Let's celebrate democracy. He means I, Adam Badiou, have written a great work of philosophy that will be studied across the centuries. So how do you say that this elitist sense disappears in Badiou? I don't see it. Well, like I said earlier, he, does, he has an account of, the, of art and philosophy and signs all as aristocratic. But but that more fundamentally, underneath it all, is, is an account of generic equality that is indifferent to these things. That what makes great art is its capacity to render precisely that. Generic equality that is indifferent to differences. Right? Really? So this is where he's close to Derrida, too. Is how do we think of that, like a vanishing difference or a minimal difference? The great art for him is simply that capacity to be indifferent to greatness, if you like, or to be indifferent to distinction. And if he, he himself, in, in any case, I, I, mean, I share your irritation with that preface. And, um, I'm actually not that irritated with it. I, I appreciate the gutsiness of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you also left out love, which is another aristocratic event, right? You're not going to love indiscriminately. You're going to choose. Well, everything involves choice and decisions and commitments. I don't know if it's... Uh, you would say love is the thing that... that, um, uh, that disrupts your sense of self, right? That disrupts your sense of value, the things that you normally orient yourself or allow you to distinguish between what matters and what doesn't. Okay, but presumably that's not going to happen with some random individual. It's going to be an individual with specific qualities. Mm -hmm. And I'd say the same thing for arts, for science, for philosophy, any of these things. So why, why does the aristocracy, why does the meritocratic element of it disappear when we get to politics? It, it would just be that in each of these instances, the, the, the thing in question, the person you love or the artwork, etc., is the thing that allows you to, 
to act to de-differentiate, de I suppose, to find the thing in you that dissolves those differences. So the thing that allows you to think sexual difference as precisely the, the kind of, um, that point, that problematic, confused point in which you, uh, in which a difference can't be thought along a senseless lines or simply as a two, right? Simply as a, a way of being together. Um, I, don't see how this, I don't see how this gets rid of the aristocratic element of it. It doesn't get rid of the exceptional though. Maybe that's what you mean. I mean, there's something exceptional about it. Okay. Like there is something exceptional about a general will, though. Don't, don't forget. I mean, you know, that, that the idea that there are, that, that general wills are relatively rare, I think is something that we so would conceive and that we would conceive. I, in fact, would want to say that that is important to think that, to remember that they're not as rare as we think. If they're rare, it's because there is such a massive historical investment in making them rare, and that we can fight that and undo that and change that. No doubt it's the same with art, by the way, and love, surely. It must be that rare. Should we call it a I'm not sure how materialist our discussion is going to be, but uh, well, let's thank everybody for.